Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. Yep, it is an exciting week uh, because finally, after 48 years, uh, this one, uh, yeah, Harold Wilson, who you will all know that I love, uh, once said when he was setting up a commission, take seconds, wastes years. Um, we haven't. What we haven't done is told people what he's taken years to do, and that is a third runway at Heathrow. Yeah. Uh, so the government has announced that's its preferred option. To I would say massive, massive shock, huge shock, massive shock among people. Uh, not and as promised, Zach Goldsmith, the MP for Richmond Park, has resigned, uh, and there will now be a by-election, which costs a, a reason. I didn't realize a by-election cost about two hundred fifty thousand pounds. Yeah, they're, they're expensive things to run because I mean one. The thing people always forget is you don't get economies of scale, right? So you don't get, oh, we've got X number of ballot papers, X, X Y, Z. You know, they're, they're costly, costly affairs. You have to run, you still have to run all the polling stations across the place, across right? Across the constituency, yeah. Um, so let's talk about that I think is a really interesting decision. I, I Spoiler alert for our listeners, we did re- record a version of this yesterday when Stephen and I, this is basically just so that we can brag, right? We said that if we were Theresa May, which A, would be weird, uh, and B would be kind of awesome because we'd be prime minister, that we wouldn't have run a Tory candidate in that seat. And just as we predicted, that's exactly what's happened. Because we're now in some new, crazy new politics where you're allowed to just apparently do what you want. Um, Boris Johnson and Justin Greening have also got a, a, a kind of like a note from their mum that they don't have to subscribe to cabinet collective responsibility. Yeah, it's basically on like I have a suburb. It's, you can get a note from the PM going, I have a suburban... Uh, and London flat feet, seat, and, and you have to be excused. <laughs> I, I do not have to participate in voting for Heathrow. Um, but yeah, so Justin Greening and, and Boris Johnson have been given a, a get-out-of-jail uh, free card, which is one of the reasons there was a strong feeling in the Conservative Parliamentary Party that um, it would be unfair to give these chits to uh, shadow to cabinet ministers, mm. but not to give them to Zach Goldsmith to have mm. his, his run. The other element is that Although there is a lively debate about how good the Lib Dems' chances are, there is a feeling, certainly right near the top of the Tory party, that a three-way would guarantee a Lib Dem win. 
Now, so that's a three-way between a Tory candidate, an independent Zach, and a Lib Dem. And, yeah. So what they need, the Lib Dems need a swing of 17.35, 19.35. In Whitney, they got 19.3. Yeah. So it was a Whitney-style swing. But as I think you pointed out on in your newsletter, which people should subscribe to by going to your Twitter page, I'm well, guessing. Or... If you just search New Statesman Morning Call, we have now successfully got it to the top results. Um, but the idea basically that the Lib Dems can do a proper squeeze message here, right? It's not like Whitney where they were coming from fourth. They can make a, a very good case that, that it's it's them. What they want to do, right? And to correct me if I'm wrong, they want it to be a referendum on Brexit because what um, Richmond was sort of like 72, 28 in favour yeah. of Remain. It's a very affluent constituency. It's very metropolitan feeling. Yeah, it's very affluent. It's um, So it's become less friendly to the Lib Dems over time, right? Which is another one of the reasons why people go, oh, Zach has a great personal vote. Look at the swing he got in 2015. I mean, I'm sure Zach Goldsmith is a charismatic and great campaigner. However, his personal vote did not make bankers move to Richmond, which is actually the big thing. But obviously, a lot of people who work in the city voted to stay. Um, There's still that core of kind of uh, very well-heeled... actors, theatre producers, creatives who were the backbone of the Lib Dems wins there in the in the nineties and noughties. So it's it is it is ripe territory for them. And also yeah, they can they can squeeze the the Labour vote, which they so in Whitney they had this great result which we've seen throughout affluent southern seats which voted to stay in uh where Brexit can hurt the Tories at the Lib Dems benefit. Their problem in Whitney, however, is they didn't really hurt any of the other parties. Labour went down by a couple of points, which is sort of what we've seen um, throughout. Well, uh, let's talk about Labour then, because I think this is interesting. There have been uh, Emma Reynolds, I think, and a couple of other Labour people, actually from across... No, hang on a minute. Is it Johnny Reynolds? Johnny Reynolds. I'm getting my Reynolds in a a twist. Lisa Nandy and Clive Lewis. So a good spread across the range of the Labour Party there. have called for Labour not to stand a candidate, yeah. which kind of suits them, really. If you think we're not going to win that seat, we're not going to, you know, and why wouldn't, why w- wouldn't you, t- a, a defeat for the Tories is a win for Labour kind of by default. So I can see the logic there. Yeah, I mean, although it's not going to happen, the the leadership has ruled it out. The NEC is, I mean, I was just looking at the numbers. I just can't see how you'd get a majority on the NEC for not standing, you know, Labour's sort of tribalism is one of the strongest forces in in, uh, on earth, let alone in British politics. Um, but yeah, it, it makes perfect sense. One, because it's a vanity exercise, right? It is a waste of everyone's time and money. Mm. Um, and, then, and it just muddies the what could otherwise be, uh, you know, a kind of... A, I mean, bless him, Zach Goldsmith wants this to be a referendum on Heathrow and a, and a sort of referendum on the government's decision on Heathrow. And I'm not sure how then voting for somebody in two until five minutes ago was a Tory MP is going to kind of quite deliver that message i think i can see how he thinks he's going to sell it i'm just not sure it's it's one step too complicated to make a good doorstep message i think i think he's got the worst of of all possible worlds on this one one is exactly as you say it's quite a complex message um and he's also basically going vote for me in order to stop something that has already happened right Heathrow is going to happen or it will be defeated in the courts right but zach goldsmith winning or losing that by-election is going to make no difference whatsoever to whether or not there is a new runway uh, at Heathrow. But I wonder whether or not he just he's just kind of done with with Parliament. And I don't you know. And I, and I don't pretend to any kind of special insight uh, into his his mind. But you know, he he did the London mayoral run with a campaign that I don't think he liked. I think he felt very uneasy with it. Nevertheless, he went along with it, which I don't think reflects particularly well on him. But 
it's not you know he's he i don't he's 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 done some stuff on reform of, of parliament and stuff like that but i don't get the sense that he thinks there's a kind of great more to, for him to do in the role of uh, of a backbench tory mp it's i mean it's an interesting question from the point of view of um theresa may's majority this morning we also had the sad news that um Nick Bowles, who's of one of the uh, former skills minister, is, has been diagnosed with cancer and is therefore going to be taking a bit of time away. I mean, you're going to have lots of votes where presumably there are going to be very few. You know, there's very very little slack in the in the Tory vote. Well, Nick Bowles will just have a pair. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, it's obviously really sad news, and we hope he recovers. The weird thing is that is actually. I was talking about this with a Labour MP, and they said the slightly bizarre thing is is that whenever an MP on the other side is sick and you want to go to your kid's school play you have this weird 10 minutes where you're like i'm so glad that this has happened because you say to the whips can i go they're like oh yeah sure we need a pair for so and so they've got cancer or their mum is dying you're like great and you're like oh wait no that's not great that's 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 terrible so that won't really affect the majority if however he decides to step down or you know the, the worst happens who gets selected there probably someone a bit more brexity um, yeah, her majority is looking increasingly sort of uh, wary. And, and I saw three um, three Tory MPs yesterday who were all in that kind of you know commuter belt of out, outer London, coming up with pretty you know saying it was unworkable and they were disappointed. Various tones of of strength about this. I think that twelve majority is not looking great and and rock solid, and certainly is not reflective of her poll ratings, right? The forty-five percent or whatever it is she's on in the polls. Yeah, I, I think. Cause, yeah, the other interesting thing about the majority is, is let's say um, that Goldsmith does. As to be honest, I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he, uh, he won. It's, it's possible, but I, I would make the Lib Dems the favourite in the by-election. Um, if, if as I expect, the Lib Dems win, uh, then suddenly every Tory MP who has only two thousand votes, three thousand, five thousand votes behind a Lib Dem. We'll look at this twenty-four thousand vote majority and go, "Oh God, that could happen to me." Whereas in a general election, on you know, they, you'd expect that they would do better. I think. Yeah, I mean, my instinct is is one you always get smaller swings to you in by election in general and by elections end up as two horse races as well, right? So you would probably kind of the Lib Dem and also the Lib Dems aren't going to be able to be everywhere. Whereas what we saw in Whitney is they poured enormous amount of resources into this into that seat. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that is, this is the other thing with Whitney, right? So Whitney, they had a 19.3% swing, as we've said, but they also had the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister's predecessor, who was the popular local incumbent, campaigning there. They had the whole weight of the Tory party there. Mm. Now, I'm still waiting on CCHQ to give me a definitive answer about what they're going to do in terms of resources. In terms of data protection, however, they can't tell Zach Goldsmith where his voters are. Uh... They can't really give money than people have donated to the Tory party. Yeah, they can't use mailing lists. Like they all can't of... use mailing lists. They can't. You kind of. He's all... now exiled himself from the, the weight yeah. of the Tory machine, and and you know, I mean, he might want to spend his own money, but he would be doing it from completely from yeah. from scratch. And and yeah, I mean, I saw. Uh, That's why know. I just see it as a parachute. That's why I just think that the calculation must be that this is a way to leave the Commons with your head held high, having gone out on an issue of principle. 
Um, and I don't think, I just don't know whether or not, I don't know. Oh, I know, I reckon he thinks he can survive MPs, and I'm aware <laughs> I'm taking my life in my hands because several MPs listen to this podcast, but MPs have a, an inflated idea of the importance of their personal vote, right? You sound like Samuel Tarry now. Did you read his interview with the Huffington Post about how all MPs are cack and maybe oh, yeah. the new next leader of the Labour Party isn't even in Parliament yet? Maybe it's Sam Tarry. Wink, who, yeah. wink. <laughs> um, I mean, I wouldn't go quite, quite that far, but... Um, but the thing is, people always forget about personal votes, is there are a lot of people in a constituency, right? There are about 70,000, and obviously that will change slightly with boundary changes, right? Which, But people forget that actually, if there are 6,000 people who will vote for you, but who wouldn't usually vote for your party, right? That's incredibly impressive. However, that's also useless, right? Yeah, like, it's not useless if you're Ben Bradshaw, right? And you've got a majority of 6,000, and to be honest, you can kind of see people who, who wouldn't vote, yeah, who vote... Tory in the council elections, Tory in the European elections, Tory in the county councils, but they vote for Ben Bradshaw, right? Mm-hmm. But if Ben Bradshaw stood on his own, he'd only get 6,000 votes, right? The, 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 yeah. the 19,000 Labour over votes the line. He's kind of, then he's got his personal vote on top of, however, would still would, would go somewhere else. And this is the thing is, I mean, one I don't, I don't buy for a moment that Zach Goldsmith is anywhere near as popular in uh, in Richmond as, as, as Ben Bradshaw is in Exeter, but... Even if he was, it's still not very useful as a, a a base. My guess is he will get a lot of the Tory vote by default. However, that works both ways because the Lib Dems can entirely honestly say, "Here is the pro pro you know who here is the candidate of the pro Heathrow pro Brexit government." Right? He both yeah. voted for Brexit and ultimately, like, he is still a Tory. Right? He's he's not gonna yeah like. Theresa May is still for Heathrow, right? If you if you hate Heathrow, you should vote Lib Dem. If you hate Brexit, you should vote Lib Dem. In, this is in Richmond. I'm not endorsing that throughout the, the country. Um, they are. There is no question in that by-election to which the Lib Dems are not a better answer. And just in general, I think that does not bode well for Zach Goldsmith. I was thinking that maybe, like, who has the best hair? I haven't seen the other candidate, but it's tough to beat. Zach has great hair. I mean, Sarah Olney's got very long hair. I actually think Zach Goldsmith's hair kind of looks like it's thinning. <sighs> Zach Goldsmith's not one of the MPs who listen to the podcast. <laughs> you better, you better <laughs> hope not. Well, uh, on that bombshell, thank you um, very much for probably making sure that lots of men now think that you've cussed them out along with the Welsh in this podcast, Stephen. <laughs> Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And together we host the New Statesman's pop culture podcast, Seriously. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can get this episode and everything else we've done on newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. So, Stephen, last night I went to see Doctor Strange, which is the latest Marvel movie. It is in, I'm going to get this right, it's in the Avengers universe. I know we've had this discussion before about the different universes and my inability to keep up with who's in which one, but this is definitively in the X-Men universe. It's got Benedict Cumberbatch, my love, uh, as Doctor Strange, uh, Rachel McAdam as his slightly one-dimensional love interest, Tilda Swinton as the Ancient One, which is in the character, in the Comics originally is a Tibetan kind of mystic. That's never moved to Nepal because uh, they didn't want to upset the Chinese, apparently, according to one of the screenwriters. And Benedict Wong, who you will have last seen in um, the excellent last episode of Black Mirror, uh, as a character called Wong. Um, So I'm going to bring you up on something. So you went to see Doctor Strange. I did. How did you wangle that? 
I got a press ticket for it from uh, Kate, our arts editor, because I'm reviewing it in this week's magazine. Now, my understanding occasionally when I read reviews is people often refer to my guest or my companion, a plus one, some might say. I did. You know what the worst thing about this is? I did have a plus one and I took my husband and I came out and I went, oh, I really enjoyed that. And he went, oh, it's all just a bit CGI, isn't it? I mean, he I, he doesn't, obviously, I'm not married to Kevin the teenager. He doesn't really talk like that. But that was a, a, a useful indication of his tone. So what happened really is that I took I took him and he complained a bit about how 3D makes him feel sick. And I don't Do you know think... what makes me feel sick? Betrayal. <laughs> and I could have taken you and you would actually have appreciated it. And it might have gone some way to atone for the fact that you had to sit through Batman. Did you watch Batman versus Superman and Suicide Squad in a kind of, I don't know, once bitten, apparently not twice shy of DC movies? So Batman versus Superman I watched because we were going to discuss it on the podcast. And Suicide Squad I watched because people said it was better. Um, and all, Oh, I also watched it because I went to see it with a large group of my friends mm. and who I hadn't seen for a while. Um, and you couldn't tell them they had terrible taste in films. But the, the thing is, and, and that is, that is, I think, why even a really bad superhero movie will tend to find, will flop, but it will find a higher level than a, another, someone without the kind of safety valve things uh, wouldn't find. Oh yeah, I mean, it's so, because they're consensus choice, aren't they? Like, yeah, they're they're inoffensive, and this is what I've written in the magazine. Um, in two thousand and four, Malcolm Gladwell wrote an article about Heinz ketchup being so dominant in in the market. Right, there basically aren't really any kind of any other ketchups worth the name. Yet, um, the mustard market diversified quite rapidly when uh, when Grey Poupon came along. Um, you know, why are there so many mustards and only one type of ketchup? And the answer is that mustard is a much stronger taste, whereas ketchup is an incredibly sophisticated blend of umami from the tomatoes it's got vinegar in it so it's got the sourness it's got sugar in it it's got salt in it and it's basically just it's something and nothing in the same way that coca-cola is what does coca-cola taste of well a little bit of cinnamon there's a little bit of vanilla there's a little bit of taste all of joy but it, yeah yeah it does it's but the opposite um, of not being given a plus one <laughs> to see dr strange I'm, I'm really sorry i'm, I'm really i'm yeah you could, I could kick uh, Caroline off from seeing um, the King Lear with me next week, and you could come and see. That's, That's not... fine because that would then trigger us. Uh, this is literally the plot of a sitcom at that point, where like we end up with, a, and it, it, what it will end up is me having to take, I don't know, like an, an intern to see a performance poet and no one wants no one no no one wants that but um so my my theory is that that's what marvel movies are right marvel movies have a similar condiment that i think of as marvel sauce where there are a couple of elements now that have just worked really well for them the first i think the principal one is that snarky tone right that kind of constant uh undercutting that you get you know the kind of so the classic moment is the end of the avengers where robert downey jr's iron man says like you know oh i really fancy a shawarma and it's kind of like i'm just throwing in a little because we spent a whole thing essentially fighting tom hiddleston in an absurd outfit wielding a giant stick that's invested with some Norse god's power. I'm going to make a jokey pop cultural reference in order to remind everybody why I don't take myself that seriously. And then there's this weird thing of, I mean, I, they are, it is now kind of slightly absurd how male-dominated they are, right? You yeah. just get, you get Scarlett Johansson's bum and that's kind of the only... But we are going to be having Brie Larson's bum as Captain Marvel. Yeah, so that's, that's good. That's, so that's, that's yeah. overdue, but um, uh, yeah... Here's the thing, I've seen two bad DC movies and you'd think, surely this idiot wouldn't see a third. The bad news is is the, the next one is Wonder Woman, right? Mm. And I feel that if Wonder Woman does worse than Batman vs. Superman and Suicide Squad, uh, Hollywood won't go, this is because every DC film since The Dark Knight Rises 
which was brilliant, has been terrible. And finally, that has caught up with us. They're going to go, people don't like superheroes, movies starring women. So I'm going to have to watch Wonder Woman, knowing it's going to be bad, knowing I'm not going to enjoy it, but purely in order to make sure that eventually they do make like a Black Widow film at some point. Yeah, I kind of watched female ghostbusters on a similar premise we'd just be like i i even if i don't enjoy this i'm i know it's going to upset the kind of people that send mean tweets to leslie jones so um that, yeah. you know as so i've done my civic duty um yeah i just yeah I, I just think the problem with them is that they're kind of they're too um they're too good in a very homogenous way and i wonder how long that can kind of continue because they've done this you know great thing about having him um, kevin feig i believe it's pronounced their studio head mm. And there's, you know, a huge amount of continuity. And I spoiler alert, the the post credits bit in this one is involves Thor turning up as well. Um so, you know, it's obvious that everything is going to be laced together extremely tightly. But I wonder if at some point I'll just be like, I've seen this movie. I've seen this movie now like six or seven times. And it's and it's good and I enjoy it. And if I was flicking through and it was a you know, Sunday afternoon, I would definitely watch that rather than like Battleship Potemkin. But Am I actively going to spend 15 quid to go to the cinema and see it? Well, it is an interesting question, actually, about uh, the decline of uh, cowboy movies, right? Which similarly dominated the box office for about a three-decade period. I don't really know anything about cowboy movies, so I can't say with any confidence whether it is fair to say that by the end they had also dropped in quality. But yeah, the question is, is it just that at some point people are like, eh, no, actually... We want we want a new kind of blockbuster fare, or, or is it that provided they can keep the quality level up? Because actually, Disney um, has not really changed its formula all that much in terms of you know the kind of the mm. core Disney product. Obviously, they did have a decline in people watching things in the in the in the early noughties, but it wasn't because the format was bad it was because the kingdom of atlantis or whatever it's called is terrible right it yeah they had a, a run of really bad films but frozen actually has the classic disney uh plot structure it's just very good so it's successful so i kind of think that people people will always want to watch on a big screen i think the interesting thing is whether or not it starts to hit the long tail of dvd sales that's very true because i really enjoyed it and i think it really it was one of the relatively few films i've seen recently that really i would say go and watch it in 3d because it does um there's a whole trope of astral projection and so that's a a situation in which you can very obviously have one set of world and then there are people who are kind of supposed to in some indefinable way seem you know they've been lifted out of that and 3d effects really really work for that so i can see yeah that these are films that justify shelling out for a for a cinema ticket would i watch it again no i don't think i would buy a d i don't think i would buy or rent a dvd of it i have to say i'm trying to think which of the which of the Marvel movies I have watched again? I think I probably watched the Iron Man's a couple of times. So the other thing is, so I so I end by saying, Deadpool I think is is it's a mustard movie, right? Mm-hmm. It's you know it's it's kind of there's things that are wrong with it and things that are it's much more it's a much stronger taste. It's kind of more like a camembert or like a red wine or something like that. You know, it's something you would not have liked at the age of nine, but you kind of like in relatively small quantities now. And I wonder if there will be more of of those when they, you know, when they kind of when they get bored of making ketchup movies or people get bored of ketchup movies. I mean, I think there are a couple of things I'm interested in. One is how the new Spider-Man film does, because the evidence with reboots is basically you do seem to get three in a row, right? So Spider-Man three wasn't that good. The Amazing Spider-Man wasn't that good. The Amazing Spider-Man two, I actually couldn't be bothered to see it, but I'm told it wasn't very good. 
And the interesting thing is The Amazing Spider-Man 2 was the one which couldn't really survive its bad reviews. People weren't really willing to give it the benefit of the doubt. The interesting thing will be whether or not the Marvel Imprimatur is able to revive the Spider-Man brand, which has That's actually... interesting. Because also jo- Joss Whedon was, was talking recently about having directed the second Avengers film and just feeling a slight sense of disappointment with it, that it just kind of happened, but nothing... But, you know, there was almost no... You know, it was just, it just was fine. It did fine. It did really well, you know, but it wasn't, I think for him, there was a sort of a certain sense of slight letdown about it. Well, I think the thing is, is Civil War was a much better second Avengers film than Age of Ultron was. Yeah. Uh, But I think the problem with the Marvel format is there's always one film in each phase, which you feel very much is the, and now I need to put all of the people in place. So Iron Man 2, I think, really suffered from being... The one where you've know, got the the Russian guy with the silly whips. And, oh, yeah. And it was the one which really suffered a lot from them feeling, right, so in order to be in the Avengers, you need to be here, you need to be here, this needs to happen here. And I feel the... Like weird, reverse engineered, basically. Yeah, weirdly, despite the fact that the Avengers film is allegedly kind of meant to be the capstone of its phase, <laughs> Age of Ultron felt like the... Right, because at some point Ultron has to happen in order to make Iron Man feel really sad. So he uh, has his fight with Captain America, right? All of that needs to needs to happen at some point. They, the Avengers need to be torn apart. Mm. But the problem is, is, is the Avengers movie actually felt weirdly like a, a preamble, and all of the emotional payload, which would have made Avengers two feel more powerful, was in another film. Well, that was another problem I had with, with Doctor Strange, which, I, you know, I, I, I am nitpicking here because it was a, a really enjoyable film. I was going to say, I really hope you're not going to tell me that this film that you got to see without me was, was bad. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I don't know. It's just something missing, Stephen. Um, no, the, the problem was the, um, uh, the, there wasn't a lot of room. I mean, it was, it was the most classic hero's journey you've ever seen. You know, Christopher Vogler's hero's journey, which was famously the idea that um, George Lucas based Star Wars on. So you have a hero in the normal world. They kind of, the normal world gets shattered. They go and... They meet a mentor. They're taught new things. Then there's challenges and you know, enemies and allies. Then there's a literal death and rebirth. And then they take what they've learned at the new world and back to the back to the ordinary back to the ordinary world. And this could not have adhered more closely to that. Um, but within that, there wasn't. I mean, you were, the thing you were supposed to feel sad about is the fact he has a car crash. And his hands end up very scarred and he can no longer operate on people. But the trouble is he can make swords out of energy and he has a special ring that allows him to teleport through like to through space. It you just kind of having a slightly slight tremor just doesn't seem like the worst thing to deal with in those situations. Whereas Deadpool you know, the fact that he is a, he's he's got this healing factor in no way makes up for the fact that he kind of, you know, he feels like a freak that he can't walk down the street without people like looking at him. And that, that emotionality, I felt much more strongly on Deadpool's side as a result of that than I did on, on Doctor Strange's side, who really actually seems to be like a really intelligent guy. He's basically always had it easy and then finds that he's really good at like mystic bollocks as well. Yeah, the cape was good. You'll like the cape. The cape does look very cool in the trailers, and, and I'm Mads Mikkelsen's forward. eye makeup is extraordinary. I'm looking forward to seeing it when I have to, you know, pay to go and see it at my local view. But, um, but I'll I- take you to the next one. How about that? Okay, sure. That's okay, it's yeah. a date. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is. 
Hi, I'm Stephanie. And I'm John. And we host Skylines, the City Metric podcast, where every two weeks we talk about cities, maps, and the human world. Whether the Olympics are good for cities, what it's like to be a woman in a city. And we've had guests like Lauren Elkin, Caroline Criado Perez, and Neil Codlin, the keyboard player from Suede, because I'm nearly cool now. Tune in on iTunes or on Acast. Check it out. And now it's time for You Ask Us. You Ask Us. We should have a new jingle for that. That sounds more dynamic. Or we could not. You Ask Us. Okay, now it's time for a section that I'm not going to name again. Uh, (laughs) The Um, format of which should be obvious in which you (laughs) ask us a question and after a strange musical interlude, we attempt to answer it. Um, This was a good one from uh, one of the readers of my uh, new morning email, which I don't think we've mentioned yet uh, in this podcast. Uh, but um, where can people sign up for this morning email, Stephen? Uh, they just search. If you search "Staggers Morning Call" or "New Statesman Morning Call," or just go onto my author page, there's a link to it in my uh, bio. Um, it's it's very good. It has been pronounced slightly better than the rest of the field by one. It's uh, the best thing that can happen to you before eight thirty a.m. in the morning. Although yeah. I consider it to be quite a narrow field. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 handy. Someone says it sets you right up for for the day in terms of telling you what's going on it's brilliant you should subscribe but all of this is a slightly lengthy advertorial um uh to introduce a question that one of our readers sent this morning uh whose name i'm afraid escapes me because i'm rubbish with names um assuming for a moment that labor had had the leadership election system that it had in the 70s which produced michael foot so someone who had the support of at least half the parliamentary party to win mm-hmm who would have won the 2015 leadership election? Well, not to introduce an overly large note of complexity, but we could also look at what would happen if you had the system the Tories have, where they go through subsequent rounds and then you put the final two to the... We could, although the... I wasn't sure. Have we done that or have we just discussed that in the office? I think you and I might have just had you know yeah. another chat about this. But let's do the first one, which is pure PLP voting, right? Okay, so I, I looked up the figures. This is my research. Andy Burnham got 68 PLP nominations. Effectively, we got 59. Mm-hmm. Liz Kendall got 41, and Jez We Can got 36. So I'm going to take a wild premise that the first person to have been knocked out had there been MPs voting would have been Jeremy Corbyn. Yes, except the other thing you'd have to do is, I'm assuming it would have been a secret ballot like the the system would be. So so Jeremy would only have got the core the core of his, his 14. Fi- yeah, his 14. I think the other the other thing is is that if you ha- if you have elections by the PLP, you wouldn't have had a situation where Tristram, Chucker, Mary Cray, um, and and Liz were having to fight for there can only be one candidate from the Blairite or Revisionist wing. Which my instinct is Liz would not have had to go. Well, not much, Liz would not have gone as far to the right if she hadn't had to win the kind of internal contest to be the candidate from that bit. Of the yep. party. So I'm going to assume that you know, 14 people vote for him, he's knocked out, and then the next round, where do those 14 votes go? I would assume they go to Andy Burnham because he was presenting himself as the left candidate at the start of the summer. So are we assuming in this instance that there are only, we've still only got the Fantastic Four? I can't, I don't, don't give me Tristram Hunt, I can't be doing okay. Tristram Hunt. I'm just, I'm just saying, I, I just feel that, I think Tristram Hunt would have gone out in the first round, but... Okay, yeah, okay, that's yeah, that's fair enough. But then his votes redistribute to Liz. I mean, in a way, you sort of yeah, or or Chucker. This is why I think Chucker is the interesting variable because I think if Chucker was still in was still in this race, and I see no reason why he would have dropped out 
if if there'd been if there hadn't been the MP problem. I mean, there also was the issue that you know his now wife was having more media scrutiny than she was comfortable with. But my instinct is that at that point, if you are Kate Osmore, you're Clive Lewis, you're Diane Abbott, you you want a future in the party if you're Clive Lewis or Kate Osmore. Osmore. And if you're Diane, you've always cared about increasing the diversity of the parliamentary party. At that point, all of those people, I think, for either deep-held reasons or it's a good symbolic way of going, look, I'm non-factional, aren't I the future of this bit of the party, would have voted for Chucker. Yeah. At that point, does that allow him to leapfrog Liz or at least to appear to have more momentum than Liz? Yeah. Um, because I then think, I can. you can then see how then Chucker is... On his own in a room with um with with bland and blander, um, <laughs> um yeah okay I will allow that as an interjection I yeah. think yeah I think you can say that I I think there is probably only room as you get to the latter stages for one Liz Kendley candidate but actually had it been Chucker I think it would have been uh, had he been in the race rather than her it would have been him right for, yeah. it, it wouldn't have been Mary Cray it wouldn't have been Tristram Hunt yeah. it would have been him so let's take it down take it down to our final three on now so I'm still assuming then Corbyn gets knocked out yeah. most of those go to Andy Burnham but not all um, and so it's now Andy Yvette Chucker dun 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 what happens next will well, shock you this is the other difficult thing because it, it's impossible with all of these hypotheticals which is why they're so much fun to to free Yvette's candidacy in particular from the tactical considerations that cam- cam- campaign made about Stop the, Burnham. Yeah, about the contest they were in. As it turned out, those assumptions were all comically wrong, but they all made sense to a lot of people mm-hmm. and they were all perfectly executed. The question then is, if it had been MPs, would Yvette have fought a very different campaign? My guess is, I mean, the other thing is that the kind of this thing that was coming from certain proxies of that campaign about Chucker being too urban or whatever, Chucker then pulled out. And so it there didn't ever become a head of steam about that's not something we want to see from a Labour leader in the 21st century, that kind of briefing, is it? If yeah. Chucker's still in there, then you kind of think, yeah, I think that's interesting. The, the thing that weighs against Chucker is his constituency is Lambeth. Yeah. So there is, I mean, there is now very strongly, but even last time there was a nascent kind of, oh, well, we're actually, we're already doing really well with the votes of people in London. We're not doing with, well with the votes of white northern working class people, right? And people were nervous about UKIP doing to them what their, their Scottish mates has had happened to them, etc., etc. So I think that would have ultimately meant Chucker couldn't win among the parliamentary party. However... I can see the potential for one of Yvette or Andy to nuke themselves by being the person too obviously going, look, you don't want the black guy, right? I mean, right. I hear he likes hip-hop. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and yeah, I don't know which one of those it would be, but my instinct is that the same pressure on MPs from their constituents to nominate Corbyn would have also been brought to bear to, to vote for the most left-wing available candidate. That was part of the story of Michael Foote. He and Andy Burnham, uh, I mean, to be honest, in, in many ways, uh, Michael Foote was a more interesting politician than Andy Burnham, but, but they were similar in one way, and they were from the mainstream of the Labour Party, and they were the the unity candidate, the hold the party together, acceptable to the grassroots and the PLP. Yeah, I also think that Andy Burnham has a structural advantage in the Labour Party by um, having testicles, which is just, um, yeah. yeah, like there are just 
as we've seen over the last year, there are just some people who just, for whatever reason, they just somehow, there's something about women that they just, they don't quite see as a leadership material. Um, and I also think, yeah, you're right. I think there is a, there was an anti-Yvette vote from people who saw her as the Brownite candidate and wanted to rebel against and didn't like that kind of the dominance of that faction of the party. Whereas I don't think there was that much anti-Andy Burnham vote. There wasn't, I mean, people maybe didn't feel that impressed by him, but I don't think there's anyone who viscerally loathed him. Not a situation that you can say now about the PLP, where there are people who viscerally loathe him. Yeah, um, that I think that is definitely true. I think Andy would have won out in that situation. Uh, yeah, so I think Andy Burnham would... Big question. Would Labour be in a better position now? I mean, the the big question, right, is whether or not, uh, you know, two thirds of Labour voters um, voted Remain. Could you have maxed that out more? Well, actually, this evidence from John Curtis suggests no, there wasn't. It was Tory voters who really were the the, the crucial Brexit demographic. So that's the big. To me, that's the big question: is would another Labour leader who was really passionately, personally making a case for the European Union would that have changed the Brexit vote? And actually, I'm not sure that it would have done. So I think it would have done, but I don't think Andy Burnham would have would have been that candidate. Not because... I, I think actually, yeah, I think the Labour vote was pretty maxed out in terms of the bit which was going to vote to remain, the bit which was going to vote to leave. But I think if the Labour leader had shared a, a stage on multiple occasions with the leader of the Conservative Party, it would have spooked enough Conservative voters who would have gone, oh, but they don't usually do that. That's a bit odd, isn't it? That is a significant moment. That shows that maybe there is... Maybe big, it will affect the yeah, economy, yeah, right? Yeah, maybe there is a big risk here. They never agree on anything. But Andy would never have had the... But the thing is, it, although that was something... There's a lot of revisionism about, around the European campaign and the Labour Party. The first and most obvious one which we talk about a lot is this bizarre idea that Jeremy ran on a pro-European platform in 2015. He did not. But the other is that we ignore the fact that both Andy and Yvette said they would not share a platform with David Cameron um, because that is Labour's idea of what went wrong in the Scottish experience. It wasn't that they were at odds with a large chunk of their voters. Or that they'd had some really very bad MPs who didn't really ever visit their constituencies. Yeah, it was actually just when they got too close to David Cameron and his smell kind of stuck to them and... They just got his lurgy. Um, I bet he smells all right, actually, David Cameron. Anyway, that, at which point is probably a really good point to... I'm just trying to think whether or not I've ever smelled David Cameron. I've been close to him. I didn't notice... I, I have no recollection of his smell. No. So um, let's just maybe So don't ask that. us what his smell is, because that would not be a good thing if you ask us. But yeah, I think that if, if a pro-European candidate had done it, but that wasn't a price the PLP was willing that was no. to pay... It also wasn't a risk a lot of members were willing to take either. So I think that, yeah, it wouldn't really have made much difference. I mean, in some ways, although I don't think that Corbyn can win, I think I'd be more depressed now if, um, well, particularly be... actually if a vet had won, right? We already know that Labour can't win an election on a platform of, oh, the spending decisions 067 were fine and dandy. They did that the last time and the time before that. At least... I don't think Corbyn can win, but at least I can see how I might be wrong because it's a new thing. Yeah, and and that it whatever comes after Corbyn, and actually there are quite a lot of Corbyn supporters who say, well, actually, what I, I'm not that keen on him. It's about what it represents. He does represent a clean break with that era of the party and all the people who'd been around in the brown years and had kind of just were feeling a bit kind of knackered and run out. You know, he does force the party to go back on all sides to go back to its roots and really think about what it's for and renew itself so um yeah so that's been another exciting edition of you ask us
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, presented by Helen Lewis and me, Stephen Bush, and produced by India Bork. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.